Good evening, everyone, and a very warm welcome to you. My name is Dawn McKinley, and I'm Senior Executive Officer for BTOG. On behalf of BTOG, a very warm welcome to this BTOG webinar, ASCO in an hour. Just to let you know that Gina and I from the BTOG executive team are still available. If you need anything from us, please do send us an email. Some housekeeping for you. You can submit text questions by typing your questions via the control panel. You can do this at any time for the Q&A at the end of each presentation. We will send you an email tomorrow to give your feedback. You can complete this to receive your certificate of attendance. If you are not watching this live, then you can still collect your CPD. And this is for up to four weeks after the event date. So on to the agenda, I have great pleasure in introducing our first presenter, Professor Sanjay Popat, who is the VTOG Steering Committee Chair. Thank you. Well, good evening, everyone. I'd like to welcome you to my overview of checkpoint inhibitors in advanced non-small cell lung cancer, small cell lung cancer and COVID-19 from the ASCO 2020 annual meeting. These are my conflicts of interest. In terms of the advanced non-small cell lung cancer immunotherapy studies, we've got two data sets of the first is the Checkmate 9LA study. This is the press release that we heard about in October of last year, telling us that the combination of Nevo and IPI together with chemotherapy was superior in terms of overall survival to chemotherapy alone. When we look at the design of the study, it's a pretty straightforward design study. Patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer without ALK-EGFR uh, alterations are randomized to either receive uh, chemotherapy, histology-specific chemotherapy, or that chemotherapy for two cycles to put the fire out together with NEVO and low-dose IPI repeated until progression or for two years with a primary endpoint of overall survival. When we look at overall survival, the primary endpoint on the left-hand side was indeed met with an impressive hazard ratio of 0.69. And with four months additional follow-up on the right-hand panel, we see this is maintained and reducing with a hazard ratio of 0.66. Interestingly, when we look at PDL1 as a predictive biomarker, we see no effect whatsoever in PDL1 predicting efficacy. The benefit from NEVO-IPI plus chemo is exactly the same regardless of the PDL1 stratification negative, 1 to 49, or even more than 50%. Well, what about toxicities and discontinuation? As you'd expect, adding two immunotherapy drugs to two chemotherapy drugs, drugs does increase the treatment-related adverse event rate, and we see a three times rate higher of discontinuation for the NEVO-IPI chemo combination compared to chemo. But you have to remember that patients were on this uh, drug regime for longer than chemotherapy. So this uh, may in part be expected. So how do the Checkmate 9LA com uh, outcomes compare to what we're currently using, that is uh, immunotherapy monotherapy for the more than 50% group? Here I've listed the hazard ratios for all the key trials with Checkmate 9LA at the top, together with the rates of discontinuation. And you can see that the efficacies are relatively similar uh, compared to uh, Pembro or even uh, Atezo monotherapy with higher rates of discontinuation. When we look at uh, 9LA compared to Pembro chemotherapy in the 50% plus or the 1 to 49% uh, plus, we see these rates of uh, overall survival pretty similar for chemo uh, Pembro compared to uh, Checkmate 9LA with higher rates of discontinuation. When we look at the PDR negative population, again, we're seeing very similar rates of hazard ratio for overall survival and excess of discontinuations that's seen for the four drug regime. Now, I must stress it's very difficult to make cross trial comparisons because these are potentially different populations, uh, but we're not seeing a very clear um, uh, uh, particular efficacy signal here compared to other trials where we've been using checkpoint inhibitors together with chemotherapy. 
The other uh, drug that's really interesting is tirigolumab. Now, this is a new uh, anti-checkpoint inhibitor. It's against the new checkpoint uh, TIGIT in combination with atezolizumab uh, developed by Roche. Now, in this randomized phase two trial, uh, the investigators were looking to see whether tirigolumab plus atezo had an efficacy signal was better than atezolizumab alone. The co-primary endpoints were overall response rate and progression-free survival. When we look at the uh, intention to treat response rates, we see these are higher uh, for the combination than Atezo, uh, particularly in the more than 50% TPS group, where the response rates are particularly higher for uh, anti-TIGIT plus uh, Atezo compared to Atezo alone. And this translates to a, a superior progression-free survival. So this is very much a uh, combination to watch for the future. Interestingly, it didn't have much activity in the 1% to 49% group, suggesting perhaps development should be limited to the more than 50% uh, group. When we look at the toxicities, we do see excess dose modifications and dose interruptions with the combination compared to uh, monotherapy. And when we look at the quality of those toxicities, interestingly, these aren't the typical immune-related toxicities uh, we would expect uh, and relate more to rash infusion reactions and lab abnormalities uh, than particularly we would expect, uh, such as colitis or pneumonitis. Now let's switch gears and look at extensive stage uh, small cell lung cancer. Uh, there are four major data sets here to review. Uh, the first of the data sets is the Caspian study. Now we're used to the Caspian study. Uh, we have had data for Devalumab, which has shown efficacy for Devalumab plus chemo, followed by uh, Devalumab. And here at ASCO 2020, we heard the results of Devalumab plus Tremi plus chemo, followed by Derva uh, maintenance. So does adding Tremi add anything to the cocktail? Now, when we look at uh, the primary endpoint here, overall survival, unfortunately, there was a modest effect for the addition of uh, Dervatremi to chemotherapy, but this did not reach uh, statistical significance. Indeed, when we look at the adverse events, we see a near doubling of adverse events, uh, leading to discontinuation for the Dervatremi chemo compared to either chemo alone or Derva plus chemo, contributing, I think, to some of the lack of efficacy. When we look at all three arms, we see a number of things. First of all, it's pretty clear that adding Tremi to Derva really adds very little to the overall survival. And here, Derva very much is the king, better than uh, chemotherapy. But really, look at the tail. We're now starting to see a tail with this prolonged follow-up. And indeed, when we look at the two-year survival rate, we see a near doubling of the two-year survival rate uh, with uh, the addition of Derva to chemotherapy. Now, the other exciting data set is the Keynote 604. So if we have activity with Derva, we know there's activity with the T-zone in small cell. What about Pembro? We're using Pembro all the time in non-small cell lung cancer. What about in small cell lung cancer? Highly anticipated data set, Keynote 604. This is a very straightforward design study in which patients with extensive stage small cell lung cancer were randomized either the chemotherapy plus Pembro, followed by Pembro maintenance, or chemotherapy plus placebo, followed by placebo. Now, when things start getting complicated is the statistical design, because there were dual primary endpoints of progression-free survival and overall survival. And whenever you have co-primary endpoints, you have to spend alpha to allocate it to take account of type 1 error, and therefore the p-value required uh, always comes down. When we look at a progression-free survival, this was statistically significant at the uh, second interim analysis, but overall survival was not statistically significant, either at interim analysis or the final analysis. And unfortunately, whilst there was evidence of increased efficacy with pembrolizumab, this was not statistical significance, and formally this is a negative trial. Or, as my friend Tony Callis on Twitter called it, a negative positive trial, because whilst there was evidence of efficacy, it did not reach the significance threshold for overall survival. Well, what about nivolumab? Here, the ecoc Acron group was looking at nivolumab in the frontline setting in combination with chemotherapy. This is again a pretty simple design. This was a phase two trial, not a proof of print, not a proof of efficacy phase three uh, study. Here, patients with chemo uh, uh, were randomized to receive either chemo as the standard arm or chemo plus nivolumab, followed by the nivolumab maintenance or observation. 
we see that there was a significant progression-free survival and a significant overall survival uh, benefit demonstrating the efficacy of nivolumab. But unfortunately, we don't think there's going to be a proof uh, of efficacy phase three study to run uh, on from this by Bristol-Myers Squibb as yet. So in conclusion, this is a highly effective data set and a data set that academics may want to take forward or indeed Bristol may want to take forward uh, as a combination study in the future. So how does this uh, data sets all fit together? When we actually when we look at all of the PD-1, PD-L1 inhibitors, we all see very similar efficacy in terms of overall survival, either for Atezo, Derva, Pembro, or Nevo. And what's really impressive is that the two-year overall survival rate is all slightly in excess of 20% for each of these studies. Very impressive. We are in a new era in small cell lung cancer. And finally, a few words on cancer and COVID. There were two data sets that were presented uh, at ASCO. We had two data sets presented, the cancer and COVID data set and the TerraVault data set or TerraVault registry. The cancer and COVID data set is mainly a US-based data set, predominantly breast cancer data set. And here I'm presenting the TerraVault registry. This is data on the first 200 patients recruited predominantly from Europe and all patients had proven uh, uh, COVID uh, or clinically established COVID and had thoracic malignancies. We can see from the left-hand panel that the risk of mortality was highest with chemotherapy with more deaths than recoveries uh, compared to any other treatment modality, immunotherapy, targeted therapy or radiotherapy. And when we look at the multivariate analysis, we can see that the risk factors associated with death from COVID were predominantly age, poor performance status, steroid use prior to COVID and chemotherapy. And it's good to see that this registry has highlighted some of these factors which have been suggested by other um, studies uh, independently. And with that, I'd like to thank you for your attention. And of course, I'm very happy to take any questions. Okay, so this is Tom Newton Davis. Sanjay, thank you very much for that. Uh, the uh, bad news, I'm afraid, is that I can't show you pictures of Sanjay because of some slight limitations on the platform we're using at the moment. But the good news is you don't have to look at pictures of me either. So that's all, all fantastic. Um, I've got a couple of questions which have come through. I would also encourage people, please, to um, add any more questions. You can do that through the, uh, the question and chat feature on this. Um, Sanjay, can I ask you about the first study, 9LA? Um, do we need this? Do we need a different combination or have we got it all sewn up? And is this just really uh, a, a commercial advantage trial as opposed to a clinical advantage trial? Yeah, thanks, Tom. Thanks, uh, Sanjay here. Um, <clears throat> no, we do We do need to know this because actually um, we are doing OK with chemo uh, and Pembro or Pembro monotherapy. Wouldn't it be great if we could do better? Wouldn't it be great if we could get rid of uh, chemotherapy altogether? And that was the fundamental basis of the Checkmate 227 trial. Now, you've got to remember that Checkmate 227 and Checkmate 9LA did overlap in terms of their recruitment. And BMS and investigators did not know the results of Checkmate 9LA at the time that they planned and started recruitment to Checkmate 227. Now, remind the audience that Checkmate 227 was an IO-IO only um, a, a fundamentally trial. It had a chemo-IO uh, arm in it, but fundamentally it was an EVO-IPI arm. And so uh, the real question is, can you improve on all of that? And the problem that we've always had, especially with the CTLA four based trials is within the first three months we're seeing crossover the survival curves we're seeing crossover the progression free survival curves so isn't it important to perhaps try and optimize that by adding in a couple of cycles to put the fire out and then really let the checkpoint inhibitors do all their action because the key issue I think we have at the moment with um, our chemo pembro combinations how long do you really need to keep on the chemo for and that's a really important question that we haven't really uh, got answered especially in 189 with maintenance uh, uh, permatrexid so do we do i think we need it yes the world definitely did need to uh, understand that uh, better uh, but unfortunately i don't think that the the results were as spectacular as i was anticipating um, because i was really hoping to get uh, a hazard ratio personally in the different different subgroups of pdl one of less than 0.6. Um, and were you surprised by the lack of correlation pdl one uh, Would we be expecting that or have we learned from 
combination immunotherapies that maybe we're not going to see the the correlation we've seen with, for example, single agent um, PD-1 or pd one inhibitors. Yeah, I was actually quite surprised by that. But, you know, we've got so many things going on here in the uh, IMP arm. We've got chemotherapy and we've got CTLA-4 inhibitors, Iplimumab. Uh, uh, and one of the issues that uh, Checkmate 227 told us is that pd one is not a, uh, you know, great predictor uh, of um, the, the benefits here. So I was surprised at how flat the... Um, uh, predictive ability of, of uh, PDL1 was here, uh, but you know, it, you know, the data is the data, so you can't argue with that. Um, but it seems to be particularly uniform uh, across the uh, field, and you know, I'm I'm, I'm thinking it, it's it's an unusual uh, finding because we always seem to you know think that there's some predictive utility, but here there wasn't uh, any obvious at this stage anyway. Thank you. Um, cityscape, very interesting. TIGIT is, is a new molecule, um, dual immunotherapy. This is very exciting stuff. Um, in my ignorance, I'd assume the benefit was going to be mostly in patients with low pdl one expression. I thought maybe it was going to rescue those guys who were struggling and the pdl one highs, which are doing brilliantly on Pembro anyway, were going to continue to sail through. Um, did I get it wrong or, or were you surprised as well? I think I we're all, no, of course you never get anything wrong, Tom. Um, but uh, I think uh, we're all a bit surprised that uh, to see that sort of, you know, uh, distribution of of efficacy. Uh, um, I don't think we really know that much about the TIGIT checkpoint. You know, I think that's the bottom line. Do we really know enough about the PD-1, PDL-1 checkpoint? To be frank with you, I mean, most of our um, uh, data that we've learned has been from prospective clinical trials when it comes to our current checkpoint inhibitors, and we're only really dipping our toe in with tirigolumab now. I have to say, I personally was really quite uh, excited uh, about this. And, um, you know, it, it is a new checkpoint. We have got more we can do. Um, let's look uh, further at the studies as they come through. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, another question from, from the audience, as they say. Um, how do you view the EMA's decision not to approve Checkmate 227? And if 9LA is ultimately approved or reimbursed, do you expect your colleagues in the UK to use induction chemo in order to prescribe NIV-IPI? Well, the last bit's pretty easy. Um, if 9LA is reimbursed, we in the UK won't have any other option but use it according to its license indication and then in the trial indication, which is NIV-IPI plus uh, two cycles of chemotherapy uh, followed by uh, NEVO-IP maintenance. Uh, I uh, can't see how the uh, NHS prescribing uh, rules will allow a couple of cycles of chemotherapy and then followed by NEVO-IP maintenance. Um, so I, I think, you know, that's the way the uh, uh, current NHS uh, system uh, works. Now, when it comes to um, Checkmate 227 and EMA's decision, I, I was quite surprised, actually, uh, because I thought that they'd at least um, uh, give it a review, which is what the FDA did. But if you look at their detailed uh, analysis of why they had some concerns about the way the trial was uh, uh, amended over the many years that the trial uh, uh, recruited to. Remember at the time we were having phase three trials reporting on an almost quarterly basis with potential practice changing data sets. So I think BMS were in a position where they had to amend the trial to make it um, relevant to practice moving forward in, in the uh, next five years. And I think they unfortunately were, were a victim of this because it made it very difficult to account for how patients were streamlined and filtered through the uh, uh, process. Okay, thank you. Um, last question before we, we, we move on. Um, Caspian, we saw the addition of trimelimumab to um, devalumab. Uh, didn't really improve things very much. Is this the end of trimelimumab? Um, we haven't seen any studies really where it's significantly improved outcomes. Just a bit unlucky, or um, do, do we think that uh, this is the end of the road? Well, I wouldn't never say end of the road. I mean, I think um, we're all a 
bit disappointed to um, see the Caspian Dervatremi combo uh, data. I, for one, was you know really anticipating this, um, but you know I think CTLA4 inhibitors have fallen a bit foul uh, so far in uh, non-small cell lung cancer, and I would suggest they have uh, perhaps limited activity in. Uh, small cell lung cancer. You know the the, the data that we have on nevo in the old, in the late relapse line in the FDA labelled uh, 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 indication is is non-randomised. Uh, so you know, will we see something with a CTLA4 inhibitor in mesothelioma? Uh, we have very interesting data coming from Checkmate uh, 743 in nevo uh, and maybe this is uh, an area where Tremi could. Uh, perhaps, perhaps explore uh, further. So I don't think this is the end of um, CTLA-4 inhibitors in lung cancer, um, but um, you know it is disappointing to see that in small cell. Okay, and then we've just got time for one more quick one. Um, looking at the 22%-ish, 20% two-year survival with a small cell chemoimmunos, there is a subset of people doing very well, apparently, maybe one in 10, one in... Uh, maybe a bit more. How do, how do we pick them out? Well, I think this is the million-dollar question um, because we have no biological way of really picking these uh, guys out yet. We uh, know from all the data we've seen so far that PDL1 is not a good predictor. Um, but you know, we've pretty much been looking at PDL1 uh, expression mainly on tumor cells. Maybe we need to think about the CPS score. Um, that may be a better predictor. Uh, TMB uh, does not seem to be a good predictor of uh, efficacy. Uh, you know, to me, I think this is re really clinical factors. Um, you know, those uh, patients that are fitter with less bulk of uh, disease on board um, probably have some benefit moving forward. But you know, I don't, I don't think we have any real data to hang our hat on. And at this stage, I wouldn't. Um, I wouldn't exclude a checkpoint inhibitor who, in any patient that met the trial inclusion criteria. Okay, thank you very much. I think we're done. I think time to move on. Thank you very much, uh, Tom. So uh, uh, with that, uh, uh, I very much like to welcome you, Tom, to, uh, to the audience. Tom Newsom davis is a uh, medical oncologist at the Chelsea and Westminster uh, Hospital and is the uh, vice chair of the BTOG uh, steering committee. And Tom, you're going to update us on the barrage of data at uh, ASCO 2020 on uh, TKIs and also update us on uh, MISO. So over to you, Tom. Thank you very much. And here are my selected abstracts from ASCO 2020. This is very much a brief overview, and I'd encourage you to look at these slides on the BTOG website and also the ASCO website for further details. Here are my disclosures. The first thing I'd like to focus on is adjuvant EGFR TKIs after surgery in patients with EGFR mutated lung cancer. And one of the premier abstracts of ASCO 2020 was one of these, ADORA, which is LBA number five. So ADORA is comparing ozumatinib to placebo in patients with stage one, two, and three A non-small cell lung cancer harboring a common EGFR mutation. Patients either did or didn't have adjuvant chemotherapy according to investigator choice and then were randomized one-to-one -to, -one to have either ozimertinib or placebo with a primary endpoint of disease-free survival and a planned treatment duration of three years. But actually the data presented at ASCO was of an unplanned interim analysis because the study was unblinded early on the recommendation of the Independent Data Monitoring Committee. The reason for this uh, unblinding was this very impressive improvement in DFS or disease-free survival with an unprecedented hazard ratio of 0.17, early separation of the curves and a marked improvement of DFS at one, two and three years. The benefit was seen really across all subgroups, regardless of gender, age, smoking status uh, and whether they did or did not receive chemotherapy. Perhaps L858R patients benefiting a little bit less than exon 19 deletion, but still the hazard ratios in both groups extremely impressive. 
maybe as we would expect, the benefit was greatest in patients with higher risk, higher stage disease, bottom right hand side, stage 3A, and less marked in patients with earlier stage disease. But even in the latter, actually, the hazard ratio is still an impressive 0.5. Side effects, as you would expect with ozimersinib, were minor and, and nothing unexpected was presented. You will notice I have not mentioned any overall survival data. And the reason for that is that the information provided was very immature and we do not have an OS benefit. Now you might say, well, that's fine. That's a very, very impressive disease-free survival. That's all I need. But just look at one other study presented at ASCO, the adjuvant study. This is an old study. And this compares gefitinib to chemotherapy in patients with EGFR mutated lung cancer, which was resected. This study did not include, by the way, stage 1A patients. And previously at ASCO, uh, improvement in disease-free survival has also been shown. Now, criticism has been leveled at this study for a number of reasons, including, for example, not all patients received full staging with a PET scan, reflecting the fact that it did start recruiting back in 2011. The data presented as ASCO this year shows no improvement in overall survival despite that previous DFS benefit. So we're in a situation where ozimertinib has shown a very impressive improvement in DFS. So you might conclude that's enough for me. This is what we should be giving. Or we might conclude in the adjuvant setting, the only reason to give that treatment is to increase cure rates. And until we have overall survival benefits, there's no point in changing practice. And maybe that's one for the discussion afterwards. Turning our attention next to EGFR exon 20 insertions, just to remind you, these comparatively uncommon mutations, maybe about 20-25% of all the EGFR mutations we see, have tended to be resistant to first and second generation EGFR TKIs. For a while, we've seen a couple of agents coming through, and one of these, posiotinib, updated their data in this abstract. This is a phase two study in the Zenith uh, trial. On the left-hand side, you can see an overall response rate of around 15%, but I think a slightly disappointing progression-free survival of only four months. New data on the right suggests a variation in response rate and disease control rate according to where in the gene that insertion occurs. So maybe what we'll be doing in the future is looking at the detail of the exon 20 insertion and selecting our treatment accordingly. Data was also presented in this abstract on some evidence of CNS activity in patients with known brain metastases. If posiotinib is a bit uh, disappointing, what else might we have? Well, amivantamab is a monoclonal antibody that targets both EGFR and MET, and on the face of it, a slightly better overall response rate. We can see this is between 30 and 40%, depending on whether the patient is treatment naive or previously treated on the right-hand side, and a disease control rate of maybe around 80%. Progression-free survival on the right-hand side graph there is, I think, a little bit better perhaps than posiotinib, but still not groundbreaking. The data presented also suggests that amivantinab is better tolerated with lower rates of grade 3 or more toxicities, and in particular, very low rates of grade 3 GI and cutaneous side effects. In the absence of dramatic results of these drugs, what else might we use? What about ozimertinib? Well, I think this is a really interesting phase two study, looking at ozimertinib at the higher dose, 160 milligrams, so twice what we normally give. And there's no doubt it's not as effective here as it is with our common EGFR mutation patients. But actually, this response rate at 24% on the left-hand side there, and median progression-free survival of nine months actually compares pretty favorably. So maybe this is an option whilst we develop new agents in the meanwhile. So I'm going to turn my attention now to antibody drug conjugates, which is not something we're familiar with really with lung cancer, and HER2, again, not something we're familiar with with uh, non-small cell lung cancer. This agent is an anti-HER2 monoclonal antibody linked to a topoisomerase inhibitor, little picture on the left-hand side to explain that. The study is called a Destiny 1, and it's an open-label phase 2 study, and the second cohort was presented here, and this is HER2 mutation patients. We have previously seen in other meetings last year data from cohort 1, which was HER2 amplification patients. The overall response rate is over 60%, which I think is pretty impressive, shown on the waterfall plot on the right-hand side, and a 
pretty good median overall survival of 14 months. Overall survival data was shown, the median was not yet reached, but this is clearly an active drug uh, in these HER2 mutation patients. Side effects here, well, the usual suspects, grade one and grade two, but I think one thing of note is the myelosuppression and the, in blue are the grade three or more toxicities, and you can see that anemia and neutropenia do feature quite significantly there. The conclusion from the authors was that this is a new target in non-small cell lung cancer, and this treatment is a new possible standard of care, and I think both of those statements are reasonable, and it'd be a welcome addition to our armory. Finally, mesothelioma, I have two studies to present. The first of these is a phase two study from America, looking at the addition of dervalumab to pemetrexid and cisplatin chemotherapy. And you may remember a similar study, DREAM from Australia last year. And this is similar kind of design. In this single arm study, we can see a median overall survival of 20 months, which is pretty good for someone with mesothelioma. Just for comparison, uh, previously in, we saw the addition of bevacizumab to chemotherapy resulted in a median overall survival of 18 months. And in that study, the chemotherapy alone, the median overall survival was around 16 months. So with all the caveats of the uh, cross-trial comparison, this would appear to have favorably improved overall survival. Now, as we know with the addition of chemotherapy, sorry, immunotherapy to chemotherapy, um, there were no unexpected side effects of this combination. Phase three studies of this are ongoing, but I think it's really interesting that maybe, like in non-small cell lung cancer, the way to give immunotherapy for mesothelioma is upfront as part of chemoimmunotherapy. And the final study I'd like to present is one from Italy called the RAIM study. This is second-line mesothelioma, and we all know that we need improvements in our second-line therapies, particularly given the somewhat disappointing results of second-line pembrolizumab presented in Barcelona last year. This is a straightforward study of patients previously treated with platinum-based chemotherapy, randomized to either gemcitabine or gemcitabine and the um, anti-antigenic monoclonal antibody ramucirumab primary endpoint was overall survival and we can see an improvement in overall survival the median going up from seven and a bit to almost 14 months with a hazard ratio of 0.7 not the most dramatic hazard ratio in the world but i think we do need to bear in mind this is in second line mesothelioma which has been a very difficult area to treat Response rates themselves on the left-hand side there do not appear to be significantly increased, but disease control rate has gone up from 50 to 70%. Of particular relevance in relapsed mesothelioma is the safety and side effect profile, and there is not a significant increase in toxicities with the addition of ramucirumab to gemcitabine. The conclusions, sorry, the authors concluded that this represents a new standard of care, and I'm inclined to agree with them, mainly because both gemcitabine and ramucirumab are licensed drugs already, and this is an exciting, I think, a new addition to our treatments in mesothelioma. So in summary, I presented data on EGFR adjuvant TKIs, exon 20 insertion TKIs, antibody drug conjugates for HER2 mutated lung cancer, and new first and second line data in mesothelioma. I'm very happy to take any questions. Thank you very much. Hey, good evening, Stephen Harrow here. Um, thanks very much, Tom. Any questions um, that have come through? Um, I think the first question really is looking at the DORA study. Do you think this is practice changing for you now? Sorry, I was just muted there. I'm now back on the forms. Could you say that again? Apologies. Yeah, I was just wondering, and there's been some questions. Do you now think that the, the DORA study is, is practice changing despite have not having overall survival data? Yeah, there's a there's a Twitter storm going on um, mainly across the Atlantic about people's view on this, and you, you can take two views. Uh, you can say that DFS is extraordinary, uh, hazard ratio 0.17, albeit that's in the stage two and stage three. That's not including the one B patients, and uh, overall survival is immature at the moment. They've had to unblind early. 
Um, but this is clearly an active agent and we should be giving it. The other view is to say, well, hang on, the only reason to give an adjuvant treatment is to cure someone. That's the reason. And if you're not curing someone, if you haven't got overall survival benefit, why bother doing it? And we've seen with the, the, the CETONG adjuvant study, DFS does not necessarily mean um, an improvement in, in overall survival. Um, I think we also have to bear in mind that relapse of disease uh, is a terrible thing. We've all seen it in clinic. We see the guys are following up and disease come back and that has a big impact on quality of life. Um, the biggest theme in the Twitter storm is let's wait for the data, but I think we might be waiting quite a while. Just to remind you that adjuvant study, the second study I showed, that started recruiting in 2011. So it's a long time to get the data out. Um, personally, I'm a little bit skeptical. I am not convinced there's gonna be uh, an overall survival benefit and so not to the degree that we've seen a DFS, although I would love to be proved wrong. But I guess the acid test, if you're in clinic or your relatives in clinic and they have an EGFR mutation and you can have adjuvant osimertinib or not, what would you do? I think I'd probably go for the adjuvant osimertinib. So maybe my, my gut instinct overrides my scientific views. And three years seems a long time. I mean, what, do you, what are your views on that? That's obviously the study. Yeah, uh, it is a, it's a long time. Uh, the, the duration for gifitinib was two years. I think if you're going to give the drug, um, you're going to have to give it for a prolonged period of time. There are clearly, clearly cost implications to this, aren't there? If you're going to be giving osimertinib for three years, uh, maybe not a large number of patients having this. Um, but but it, is, it is a long time. And of course, the unblinding of the study now is going to really confuse us as to really um, how long we should be giving the drug for and the impact of that. One of the questions is about um, our thoughts on reflex EGFR testing. Um, certainly, we do that on all patients um, at the Beats, and I don't know what your practice is elsewhere, but that's something that we are already already do. Yeah, I, I think it's really important. Um, some of our patients do get uh, routine EGFR testing early, usually by accident. Um, because we're meant to be, only be doing it in people with advanced stage disease and that's just for trial reasons. So I think if we were to do this, yes, we would have to be reflexing testing everyone. I, I don't have an issue with that. I think in the big scale of the cost of cancer treatments, I think doing EGFR is pretty much the small print. So I'd be happy with people having reflex testing. Okay. Um, looking at your, the EGFR and the Exxon 20 group, um, Ozymertin of 160 milligrams, double the dose, did, was there an increase in toxicity? Did they report on that? Um, I didn't show that slide in there. Um, it's not a, um, the, the poster actually doesn't describe that terribly well, unfortunately. It's a very small uh, table tucked around the bottom. Um, the side effects, the ones that you would expect, and um, I guess in that trials population, perhaps a little bit higher, but going through it and looking at my personal experience of osimertinib, I didn't see a huge increase in it. And, and certainly the, side effects that we might be more worried about, the uh, cardiac side effects, acute prolongation, uh, the pneumonitis. There wasn't a, a concerning signal about that in this comparatively small study. Okay. Um, another question about the RAMIS study, um, which is good to see, a second line chemotherapy study in mesothelioma. Um, I suppose the question um, is, and also what I was thinking about was, the, you know, the control arm of gemcitabine, is that something that you you use uh, much in second line um, in mesothelioma practice? And would, um, no. the question here is, would gem carbo as a single agent be, be have been a better option? Yeah, I, I think most importantly, I, th I think Ramez is a much better way of saying it than me, which was Rames, which is definitely not what it is. Well, I, I don't think many Italians say Rames. <laughs> I'll, <laughs> so go I think you're spot I'll go with you. <laughs> Um, I no, I, I don't personally. I venerelbin tends to be the kind of UK standard, doesn't it? But I think the point is it doesn't really matter because they all have a bit of activity, and that activity is pretty modest. Um, and I think we need things that can add to that. Personally, if I had access to um, the gem ram combination, I'd have absolutely no hesitation switching away from venerelbin. It's not a drug I'm particularly fond of. It does cause quite a bit of GI side effects in this oral form, and then some uh, issues with venous um, discoloration in the IV form. So no, it's, it's not my standard thing, but I'd have no reservations going back to it. 
Um, you can do a platinum re-challenge. You could do gem carbo and people with a, a decent uh, platinum-free interval. But I don't find very many of those patients, uh, unfortunately. Um, so, yeah, I'd have no issue with going to gem ram if uh, that were available for me. Okay. Um, I've heard some more questions going back to the DORA study. Um, really asking about the chemotherapy component. Um, do we know how many patients in the osimertinib arm received chemotherapy component as it was optional? Um, and do we know if this influenced yeah. outcomes? Because I think you did say it was optional, which was surprising. But Yeah, that, that's a really, really good question. And unfortunately, as, as they say, time prevented me going through it fully. And it's definitely worth looking at the, uh, the presentations if you've got access to the virtual ASCO. About 45% of patients got adjuvant chemotherapy, and that raised some eyebrows. Now, we've got to bear in mind there were some stage 1B patients in the study, and I think quite a few of those patients uh, didn't get adjuvant chemotherapy, and that might fit in with generalized practice. We do know that the benefits of adjuvant chemo for that group are, are marginal, but I think some, some eyebrows were raised that maybe the rates of adjuvant chemotherapy were less than we would expect for this otherwise good prognostic good performance status group, including patients with stage two and three. So I think if you were to take out the stage one patients, I think we'd find the adjuvant chemotherapy rate were higher. We didn't have that data in the presentation. At least I didn't see it. At the moment, we're not sure how that correlates to outcomes, but I think it's a really important part. Okay, Tom, thanks very much. I think you've been grilled enough. Thanks very much for your, your insights. Okay. So uh, we're now going to switch over, because uh, we're all friends here, um, and I'm going to reintroduce Stephen, he's already met, as, as, as you can tell. Uh, and Stephen is a clinical oncologist at the Beetson Cancer Centre in Glasgow. Uh, as you might imagine, being here, we specialise in thoracic cancers uh, and a lot of focus on, on sabre and other stereotactic approaches and oligomesthetic disease. Uh, Stephen, thank you very much for the uh, third presentation this evening. Thank you, Sanjay and Tom, and good evening, everyone. I'll present five abstracts that caught my attention at ASCO this year, where radiotherapy plays a role. Here are my conflicts of interest. The first topic to discuss is data on limited stage small cell lung cancer, presented as an oral abstract. This was a randomised study undertaken in Sweden, Norway and Denmark, where the hypothesis was that a higher dose of twice daily radiotherapy to the chest and chemotherapy would be tolerable and improve local control and survival. Here's the study design. Patients received four cycles of chemotherapy, platinum etoposide, every three weeks. The radiotherapy started with cycle two of chemotherapy. The standard arm of the study was 45 grey and 30 fractions twice a day over three weeks, with 60 grey and 40 fractions twice a day, this time over four weeks in the investigational arm. The eligibility criteria was unremarkable, and patients went on to get PCI if there was a response to treatment. The primary endpoint was two-year overall survival, and in total 160 patients were randomised, as you can see here. Patient characteristics were well balanced in both arms, and the treatment was delivered as planned to the vast majority of patients. About 40% of patients went on to get second-line chemotherapy. The treatment was well tolerated. There were slightly more neutropenic infections in the lower dose arm than the 60 grey arm, and there were very few deaths during the study. Of particular note with the radiotherapy trials, the rates of grade 3 4 esophagitis, which was not higher in the high dose arm, and also low rates of grade 3 4 pneumonitis. Response rates are noted here, and notably the objective response rate was similar in both arms. So, the big news with this study is the marked difference in two year overall survival. 70.2% in the high dose arm versus 46.1% in the standard arm. The median overall survival is also statistically significant at 41.6 versus 22.9 months, and so the authors have concluded that the dose escalation is safe and effective. This study, in my view, is well designed, the arms are well balanced, the treatment was deliverable, and a twice-daily radiotherapy strategy still seems to be the best option where feasible. Points to consider are that the authors stated that based on previous data, they'd expected the 45 grey and 30 fractions to have a two-year overall survival of 53%, and in this trial, they only achieved 46%. And this is compared to 45 grey in the convert arm, having a two-year overall survival of 56%. Of note, some patients were filtered out of the final analysis 
So it's not an intention to treat population. And I was also surprised by the lack of increased toxicity in the 60 grey arm. Does that suggest that there may be a difference in the treatment volumes between the two groups? Unfortunately, there were no radiotherapy details presented. There was also no data presented on cancer-specific death rates, which would have been nice to see. Interestingly, the population appears to have been slightly older when compared to the CONVERT study and comprised of more performance data to patients, which may reflect a shift in our expectations when delivering treatment to older patients with modern radiotherapy techniques now. There was also no data on patient reported outcomes. So while very encouraging, I'm looking forward to seeing more detail in a subsequent publication and also perhaps also data on how patients manage through treatment. Next up are two studies incorporating SAVER. Firstly, we look at a randomised phase 3 study from China called the SINDAS study, where patients with EGFR mutation positive disease were treated with upfront SAVER to sites of oligometastases and then given a TKI. Here's the design study, 130 patients randomised with a primary endpoint of progression-free survival and secondary endpoint of overall survival and safety. SABRE was permitted to a maximum of two lesions in any one organ and no more than five metastases in total. It's worth noting that the SABRE dose ranged from 25 to 40 grey in five fractions. The results show the progression-free survival improved from 12.5 to 20.2 months with the prior addition of SABRE and overall survival was increased by nearly eight months to 25.2 months. There were no significant differences in grade 3, 4, 5 toxicity, which is good to see. And the authors concluded that they wished to see a larger study, but that SABER, in their words, contributed to improvement in progression-free survival and overall survival with no additional toxicity. It's always encouraging to see an increase in overall survival with a treatment strategy that again is deliverable and especially with no additional toxicity, with what in my opinion are low SABER doses. The authors would be commended for persevering with the study as 631 patients were screened and 495 patients were deemed ineligible. Unfortunately, there was really no data on radiotherapy volumes or sites that were treated, and I was a bit perplexed by the hazard ratio suggesting that two sites of disease resulted in a worse prognosis than three or more. I do wonder whether or not this is a mistake. There was also no data on subsequent treatment on progression after radiotherapy, be that more SABRE or palliative radiotherapy or systemic treatment. So I'm afraid I'm unconvinced at this point with this study. There's still a few unanswered questions and I do wonder if this data would translate to a UK population. Switching to IO and SABRE, presented in this short present poster discussion, and this study was a phase one design investigating the maximum tolerated dose that atezolizumab could be safely added to SAVER up to 60 grain five fractions whilst showing some efficacy. Histological confirmation was required. PDL1 was not known in seven patients and positive only in five of the remaining 13. There was a priming period of atezolizumab prior to the initial of SABER, which is seen in the schema here. This study recruited well and showed that the maximum tolerated dose was the flat dose of 1200 milligrams, and this was explored further in an expansion cohort. There was no associated grade 3 pneumonitis, which I would assume would be the main concern to the investigators, especially as tumours up to 7 centimetres were included as long as the SABRE constraints were met. It is worth noting that a number of patients had responded prior to SABRE when assessed, and due to the effects of SABRE post um, radiotherapy on imaging um, analysis at that time point was not done. Progression-free survival was 25 months and there was no difference seen between the pdl one positive and the pdl one negative or unknown group. I'll definitely be interested to see how this translates into the phase 3 SWOG trial that is now underway. Okay, so now I'll discuss briefly two poster discussions incorporating radiotherapy in the neoadjuvant setting. The first study is the PIT study, which stands for Personalised Induction Therapy. This is a platform study looking to individualise treatment based on histology and genotype in stage 3A N2 disease. The only arm presented is the arm in yellow, which is the non-squamous arm with no EGFR mutations. However, 27% of patients in the PIT1 arm did in fact have EGFR mutations. So patients received three cycles of BIT chemotherapy and bevacizumab, or chemotherapy and thoracic radiotherapy, and then proceeded to surgery. The primary endpoint 
was two-year progression-free survival, and other factors were analysed, such as tumour response. The majority of patients had a lobectomy and systematic mediastinal lymph node dissection. The toxicity was as you'd expect with the addition of bevacizumab. And in the thoracic radiotherapy group, there was no worrying signal for pneumonitis or esophagitis, but bear in mind that the maximum dose was 45 day and 25 fractions. Bronchopleural fistulation in the bevacizumab arm definitely frustrated the surgery outcomes with two patients dying as a consequence. I've just pointed out though that the poster states no treatment related grade three or four adverse events, but then goes on to list some, which is curious. So what was really nice to see was the high rates of responses to radiotherapy treatment prior to surgery in the radiotherapy arm and high rates of pathological response, though the means of how this was assessed could do with some further explanation. For this study, a major response was defined as less than 33% viable tumour in the resected specimen. There's no indication though of the timings between induction and therapy and surgery. And I don't believe the two-year progression-free survival really helps to separate these approaches and the differences were not statistically significant. So whilst interesting to see this approach, the poster lacked clarity and I'm not sure there's evidence to support expansion of this endeavour. Okay, lastly, I'd like to look at this phase one study, again in resectable 3A disease, this time investigating the feasibility and safety of combining pembrolizumab with cisplatinotopside chemotherapy and radiotherapy at a dose again of 45 gray and 25 fractions. After surgery, patients went on to receive consolidation pembrolizumab three weekly for six months. Nine patients were enrolled, although eight had possible um, so only eight had possible radiotherapy, uh, radiographic assessments made. Um, two never progressed um, on the study. Um, and there was a pathological complete response noted in four out of eight patients, which was impressive. And four patients went on to have consolidation pembrolizumab after surgery, with three now having completed treatment. There were, however, significant toxicity signals in all nine patients, with two patients dying as a result of treatment. Though the approach resulted in a high PASCR rate at resection, the study was halted due to this toxicity. The authors, however, have stated that further studies are underway, which is a bit of a surprise to me, and I'll be interested to see the design of these. So I'm sorry to leave things on a slightly downbeat note, but it's good to see complex trials utilising all modalities coming to fruition. But my time is up. So I will now stop talking. Um, thank you very much for your attention. Stephen, thank you very much. Uh, Tom Mission Davis back here again. You lucky people. Uh, so you've had a few questions coming through. There's quite a bit of a focus on the small cell study um, that seems to be catching people's imagination. Um, so the first question is, what specific patient characteristics would push you towards offering specific patients twice daily uh, radiotherapy? Well, I certainly think twice daily radiotherapy is, is my default option for patients um, if I can do it. So what I'm looking for is patients who are fitter, um, less comorbidity, um, obviously willing to attend and stay in hospital, um, which is always a bit of a, a sticking point. Um, so yeah, you know, I, I think patients tolerate twice daily radiotherapy really well, and I think actually being in hospital for the duration of the treatment is actually a good thing. People, you can keep an eye on them, you can get them through. Obviously, they run into problems potentially afterwards, as long as you've got good mechanisms for catching these people and they can get in touch with you if they're running into problems. But um, I, I would say that's definitely our, our default position, and that's what I would choose to do where possible with patients. And so um, looking for you know reasonable volumes, you know, the fitter end of the spectrum. And, you know, obviously I've practiced in the west of Scotland and fitness, we're not renowned for our fitness. Um, and we do manage to get the majority of our patients through this this treatment. So I would say, that, you know, that's that's where we should be starting now. Thank you. Um, another question, does a small cell study open up the question of dose escalation? What about hypofractionation? Do we need a hypofractionation dose escalation study, e.g. 55 to 60 gray in 20 fractions? I think I understand what that means. <laughs> um, 
Well, yeah, I mean, I, definitely, I think this um, is a really interesting um, study. I think that we want to try and keep improving on small cell. We've not had anything really since Convert, which was, um, you know, gave us the confidence to go to twice daily radiotherapy. So it's good to see, you know, a new strategy. Um, I, you know, I suppose, you know, the, the, the authors did not achieve the um, two-year overall survival that they were expecting in their control arm, and, and that's a wee bit concerning to me, um, considering that's what was found in the, the CONVERT study. Um, so I think we need to kind of drill down a little bit more into what was going on with the radiotherapy, what the volumes were, um, what the plans were, you know, how much of the tumour was covered in the, you know, high-dose volume. Um, so that we can really understand why this high-dose radiotherapy group have done so well, because there was no additional toxicity either, and there was no difference in control objective response either. So I would have expected in the high-dose arm to have a higher objective response rate that then translated into higher um, overall response, and, and that's not been borne out. So I think, you know, Yes, I think it's a really exciting strategy, and, and yes, I think it could be deliverable, but I think we would probably need to know more about their radiotherapy details before um, we started to, to, to jump all over um, this as a, as a good option. Thank you very much. Um, and the last question before I hand uh, back to Sanjay is a um, very polite question. I'd like to ask Stephen uh, what he thinks the role of radiotherapy is in the new adjuvant setting following the posters he discussed given publication this week of the Atizo IO neoadjuvant study and other ongoing, uh, for example, NADIM2? Um, so, you know, these studies were, were obviously quite disappointing to see um, in the, 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 the present, in, in the ASCO, and they were both studies that got poster um, discussions. You know, it's really complicated, I think, to start to incorporate immunotherapy, chemotherapy and radiotherapy you know, into to these trials. And so I think the authors need to be commended for doing that. Um, I do think, you know, toxicity is going to be, you know, key um, to, to, to watch for and, and to be able to manage. Um, and so you need to have really good, you know, robust systems in place. We were just talking about that with the small cell group. Um, so, you know, I think that it shouldn't be a strategy that we're not looking to because we are always trying to improve the survival um, in patients who are getting radical treatment. Um, but I think we have to be cautious about side effects and have very good mechanisms in place to capture patients if they're running into problems and deal with the, the side effects. Okay, thank you very much. Sanjay, over to you. Well, uh, thank you very much, gents. I'd uh, very much uh, like to um, thank you uh, for presenting your topics. Um, we have, I just want to focus one thing. So from each of you, is there anything that's going to change your practice uh, moving forward? Uh, uh, what do you take out from ASCO? So is there anything practice changing, Tom? I think ADORA is going to be practice changing in countries rich enough to afford it. Thank you. And Stephen, uh, what are you going to change in your practice as a consequence of um, ASCO 20? Are we going to all be doing twice daily radiotherapy for longer periods of time for our small cell limited stage uh, patients? Um, I would be surprised if that's going to come down the line. I don't think it's there yet, but I would certainly like to be involved in any trials um, that we're going to incorporate that. I think we should certainly embrace that as a potential option. Um, but I I don't think we would be doing that quite yet until we know more data. Thank you. And from my viewpoint in terms of immunotherapy, I think, you know, we've just further consolidated our uh, knowledge of using immune, immune checkpoint inhibitors in extensive stage small cell lung cancer in combination with chemo and had yet another nevo EP data set, which we're still struggling to place in our treatment algorithm and uh, will allow us uh, to navel gaze further for the next few years. Uh, and uh, of course, we have exciting new checkpoint inhibitors as us medical oncologists all like to have uh, to play with in future months. 
So uh, with that, I would very much like to thank all of you for your attention. This has been our first uh, ASCO in an hour. I hope you very much enjoyed it and haven't been uh, trapped by many technical uh, problems, even though you weren't able to see the uh, beautiful faces of young Tom and young Stephen. Um, we hope to uh, uh, fix that for next time round. Uh, I wanted to make you all aware of the next BTOG web webinar, Lung Cancer in the Time of COVID. Uh, this is a live event on Thursday, the 23rd of July. Uh, please do register for this. Uh, we are going to be exploring uh, evidence of best practice how can we learn from each other to uh, change our practice and really debate how we are going to be moving forward, uh, living with COVID and treating our patients and even perhaps screening for our uh, uh, patients moving uh, forward. I'd very much like to uh, also thank the Roy Castle Lung Cancer Foundation for partnering with us. Uh, again, this is actually our fifth annual ASCO update and um, you know, perhaps our biggest and best yet. Uh, and uh, we look forward to partnering with uh, Roy Castle Lung Cancer Foundation in uh, future years. Uh, please do give us feedback. Your feedback is important and everything you say does uh, get incorporated to uh, future events. Uh, there is CPD available with the feedback. And please do remember that these slides will be available on the BTOG um, webpage for members. And if you're not a member yet, you know what you're going to do when this is finished. So with that, I'd like to thank you very much for your attention and look forward to welcoming you at the next BTOG webinar. Thank you. <laughs>